You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Chinese domestic and foreign intelligence services are cooperating more closely in cyberspace. Another set of speculative execution issues is found in Intel chips. This month's Patch Tuesday was a big one. CrowdStrike files for its long-anticipated IPO. We'll talk WhatsApp, spyware, and zero days. Apple may be required to open its devices to apps from third-party stores. The Cyber Solarium is ready to get started, and Russia offers a helpful hand. And Baltimore continues to suffer from ransomware. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, May 15, 2019. A single command and control server is being shared by a variety of Chinese hacking organizations, including the National Security Commission, police agencies, and the Ministry of State Security. Researchers at BlackBerry Silence found that organizations which normally engage in domestic surveillance, particularly of what Beijing calls the Five Poisons, that is, ethnic Uyghur Muslims, Falun Gong practitioners, Tibetans, democracy advocates, and supporters of Taiwanese independence, share infrastructure and tools with foreign intelligence and security services like the Strategic Support Force and the Third Party of the People's Liberation Army. The groups are sharing not only command and control infrastructure, but also malware tools, notably the one Palo Alto Network's researchers call Reaver. Reaver is most familiar from operations against the unpleasantly named Five Poisons, but it's also turning up in attacks on foreign intelligence targets. BlackBerry Silence's lesson is that it's time to update TTPs and indicators of compromise. Another set of speculative execution flaws similar to Spectre and Meltdown has been found in Intel chips. Intel calls the flaws microarchitectural data sampling issues and others zombie load. As VentureBeat explains, the four vulnerabilities enable side-channel attacks. Siemens, Apple, Adobe, and Microsoft all patched yesterday. Apple's patches addressed, among other things, the zombie load side-channel vulnerability in its product's Intel chips. Cupertino wasn't alone in working on zombie load. As TechCrunch reports, Amazon, Google, Mozilla, and Microsoft also took on the speculative execution flaw. Intel itself has released a set of mitigations for the vulnerability. Fixes for zombie load are thought likely to degrade CPU performance by 20 to 40 percent. Microsoft released 16 updates in total, resolving 79 distinct vulnerabilities. One involved a bug that could be exploited by a WannaCry-like worm, and Redmond drew particular attention to this issue. It was judged serious enough that Microsoft patched beyond end-of-life software, including Windows XP and Windows 2003. Although no longer supported, both remain in wide use. 
Siemens addressed issues in its industrial control systems, and Adobe fixed problems with several products, including Acrobat and Reader. Endpoint protection shop CrowdStrike has filed for its long-expected initial public offering. The company's S1 reached the Securities and Exchange Commission yesterday. CrowdStrike intends to raise $100 million in the IPO. The company, a unicorn thrice over, valued at some $3.4 billion at the time of its most recent funding round, is not currently profitable, but that's not unusual for unicorns. They may be magical beasts, sure, but profits don't grow on trees in the forbidden forest, even for unicorns. Just ask Hagrid. NSO Group, the Herslia-based company whose intercept product Pegasus is said to have shown up in phones via a WhatsApp bug, is also by most reckonings a unicorn. The company denies having played a role in the targeted use of Pegasus against various individual users of WhatsApp. Pegasus, the company argues, is a lawful intercept product of the kind that legitimate governments use to fight crime and terror. The company's critics, Citizen Lab and Amnesty International prominent among them, note that Pegasus has been turned up in too many repressive actions for comfort. Amnesty is petitioning a Tel Aviv court to revoke NSO Group's export license. Some commentary on the WhatsApp affair has drawn scornful reactions in the Twitterverse, particularly a Bloomberg op-ed that appears to suggest that just because end-to-end encryption doesn't prevent the sort of exploit WhatsApp just patched, that encrypted communication tools amount to little more than marketing hype and eyewash. That's surely going too far. End-to-end encryption remains an important privacy and security tool. That it doesn't infallibly protect users is beside the point. Nothing infallibly protects users. Exploits that target secure devices are rare and pricey. Zerodium, the exploit brokers of Montpelier and Annapolis Junction, who revel in a bad boy image, will pay up to a million dollars for a WhatsApp bug, which suggests that they're not particularly easy to come by. Zerodium, by the way, sells exploits to security, intelligence, and law enforcement agencies, not criminals. Their office locations suggest their probable market. World Password Day has come and gone, and while it may have helped raise awareness of proper password hygiene, the fact remains that passwords are problematic. Thomas Peterson is CTO and co-founder of One Login. Well, passwords continue to be the bane of our existence. And, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty hard to get, uh, get rid of. There's a difference between consumer passwords and passwords in the enterprise. What we as a company focus on is helping manage and eliminate passwords in the enterprise. And there are standards uh, that we can use to do that. But on the consumer side, it's still not really better than it was 10 years ago. People still have passwords for all kinds of things. What happens is most people still resort to password uh, reuse. And I guess if it's something that's not super sensitive, you no, know, my Yelp reviews and my open table bookings, yeah, they're not really, it's not uh, high risk. But you no, know, for my bank account and my card account and uh, my PayPal and so on, um, I use multi factor authentication. I have a machine generated password uh, just to make sure that I could never be compromised there, at least uh, lose my credentials. Do you think the word is getting out about that? Do you think people are are adopting multi-factor and those sorts of secondary uh, security measures? 
it's getting more traction in, in the enterprise because uh, more and more companies are aware that they need to have a, a cybersecurity initiative. Uh, but even within the enterprise, it's we're not even talking about 50% adoption. And on the consumer side, very few people do it. Some, let's say, bank applications, they actually do force you to do it. Uh, so they will send you an SMS with a with a one-time password when you sign in from a new browser. Uh, that's what my bank does. Uh, but there's still a lot of thing, places where you don't have to use it. PayPal, for instance, they don't mandate that you use multi-factor authentication. It, it's something you have to opt in for. And the same thing with Facebook and uh, Gmail and so on. And I think that the vendors can do a better job of, of pushing it, but they also don't want to push people away because end users don't like it. It's kind of annoying that you have to do it. Uh, it's, it's definitely more of a necessary evil. Most people don't know that it, that it even exists and they don't know what the risk is, so that's why they don't even look into it. Do you suppose that we could be heading towards a time when we don't need this anymore? I'm thinking of things like uh, with Touch ID and Face ID, those sorts of technologies. Are we going to see those shift into more of our day-to-day -day password use? Yeah, I think it definitely helps. We're getting there slowly, I would say. Uh, things like uh, Face ID and Touch ID, they're, they're kind of just masking. There's a couple of applications on my phone that where I can use Face ID, but I still actually do have a password for the app because it also has an online version. And mm. so it's only a partially solved problem on the mobile device because the device is so sophisticated. Uh, but even most of the websites, they don't really, they can't work with it. Right? So it's, it's still just a patch when you look yeah. at it more holistically. Where do you think we're going to head ultimately? Do we have passwords in our future for the immediate future, but uh, will we ever get beyond them? You know, the question is always in on, in the consumer space, who's going to be that trusted identity provider that everybody will use? And I think uh, for a long time, Facebook was making headway, and I started signing into a bunch of things with my Facebook identity. But I think over the past couple of years, they have lost a lot of credibility just because they've had so many uh, uh, security issues. And the question is, who, who is it going to be? Is it going to be Apple or Google, or will, it, will there be multiple uh, identity providers? And, and I think that's still too early to say. Uh, on the enterprise, it's a lot easier because when you work for a company, that company basically owns your corporate identity for as long as you work for that company. So that's what we have made a living out of to sell identity management solutions for, for the enterprise. And there we can pretty much eliminate all the passwords. But the consumer side, it's, it's just still a problem. And I don't see there's any, there's no obvious solution right around the corner. That's Thomas Peterson from One Login. The U.S. Supreme Court has decided that consumers can sue Apple over prices in its App Store. The suit would allege that Apple operates a monopoly that artificially inflates prices. If successful, a suit could require Apple to allow apps purchased from third-party stores to be downloaded to its devices. This may not be a good thing for security. Apple's store has been more rigorous than most at keeping out rogue or sloppy software, and industry observers see the possibility that the decision will tend to relax that rigor. Third-party app stores have been a security problem in the Android ecosystem. The CyberSolarium, a U.S. deliberative body modeled on the Eisenhower-era group that considered nuclear strategy in the early 1950s, is ready to begin its work. 5G issues figure high among the agenda. The Solarium will have three working groups to address three major aspects of cyber strategy – persistent engagement, deterrence, and international norms and standards. And hey, the U.S. may get help from a country that wants to be partners. According to Sputnik News, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on Tuesday offered a helping hand in cyberspace. The Foreign Minister said, quote, 
I'd like to reiterate that Russia wants to and is ready to cooperate with our U.S. partners in issues relating to the cyberspace. We want to do this on a professional level, without emotions, without ideology and politicization. Mr. Lavrov's offer is likely to be coolly received, but maybe it's the thought that counts. Finally, Baltimore continues to struggle to recover from the ransomware attack it sustained last week. A number of citizen-facing services have been affected. If you're trying to buy a house here in the land of pleasant living, or as Natty Bo Beer has taught us to call it, Charm City, you may be out of luck, because the city transfer office cannot process deeds or deeds of trust for recordation. The city is also having trouble generating lien certificates and water bills. Its bad batch warnings about street drugs are also down, and that's proving a more serious problem because it affects a matter of health and safety. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Malek Ben-Salem. She's the Senior R&D Manager for Security at Accenture Labs. Malek, it's always great to have you back. Um, some of your colleagues there at Accenture uh, recently released a, a new publication, a technology a vision publication. Can you describe to us uh, what's that all about and uh, what are some of the take-homes? Sure. Um, so the Accenture Technology Vision is a publication that Accenture Labs 
uh, publishes every year. We monitor emerging trends across businesses. And in this year, one of the main security trends that we've identified is, you know, what the ecosystem-driven business reality uh, implies to security. Uh, as you know, companies continue to integrate their core business functions with third parties, with third platforms. So you have entire ecosystems that are forming and shifting industries. Now, threat actors recognize these ecosystems and see them as a, a widening attack surface. Yet most businesses don't see that they're no longer just the victims of cyber attacks, but also they are the vectors of these cybersecurity attacks. Hmm. So in this ecosystem-dependent business world, which amplifies exponentially the impact of cyber attacks, incidents cripple from one enterprise to another. And one good example of that uh, is for more than five years, a group of hackers stole insider information about publicly traded companies, not by attacking the companies themselves, but by targeting the newswire agencies that get early access to press releases mm -hmm. from these large businesses. Right. News organizations will often get information ahead of time that's under embargo. They agree not to release it. And these folks got access to that information and used it uh, for profit. Correct. So the question is, how do you respond to this reality? Right. Organizations need to change their approach and incorporate security into the collaborative strategies that they use to build their products and services. What that means is they must include ecosystem dependencies as part of their own security posture by updating the way they do threat modeling, for instance. And they need to make security an important component of how they build these partnerships. In this new ecosystem-driven business reality, uh, companies really have opportunities to use their ecosystems to up their cyber defense game and improve their security posture for themselves, uh, obviously, but also for their partners at the same time. All right. Well, good information. Malek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.